Welcome to False Flag Weekly News, the weekly news roundup that gets to the bottom of what's really going on in this insane world. I'm Kevin Barrett with Dr. Lucy Morgan Edwards. Hey, welcome, Lucy. Hi, Kevin. Good to be back. Yeah, it's well, it's a great time to bring you back with Afghanistan taking up the headlines. You're a, a true uh, Afghanistan expert and a, a total truth teller about the topic, so should be a great show. Uh, so let's go through our slides and disclaimers and all that fun obligatory stuff at the beginning of the show. Let's see. Okay, we question everything. We ask the hard questions. And if you don't like questions, uh, go look for some answers somewhere else. Let's see. Um, this is very disturbing. And indeed, we do always have to offer this medical health disclaimer. We're not doctors of medicine. Um, we are doctors, but we're not doctors of medicine. So don't take our prescriptions. And finally, we have a couple of PSAs for you. Um, oh, here's this is my uh, my new American Free Press article. It isn't out yet, but you can read it at my Substack, uh, talking about the links between anthrax 20, 2001 and COVID 2019. Um, that's one of the hard questions we like to ask here. Uh, PSA 9/11 Truth Film Festival coming up in San Francisco. Well, actually, Oakland. I'm flying out there. Hope to see you all there. And uh, next PSA, the lawyers event. That is the lawyer 9/11 lawyers are having an event that will also be live-streamed right here on noliesradio.org. It's proof that lawyers can sometimes still be good for something, no matter what Shakespeare said. And speaking of which, uh, lawyers are good for eventually getting innocent Patsy Sirhan Sirhan out of prison. He's been in for 53 years for having been hypnotized to fire a pistol twice um, in the general direction of Robert Kennedy back in 1968 when, in fact, Kennedy was shot from behind, probably by his own bodyguard, at point-blank range with powder burns on the back of his skull. Sirhan was in front of him, and there were far more bullets fired, and as proved by the LAPD even, than Sirhan even had in his gun. This guy is a totally innocent patsy, and glad to hear he's finally getting out of jail, but will we ever get the truth about this? Yeah, it's appalling. I mean, he was put in jail the year that I was born. He's been in jail for 53 years. That's absolutely shocking for a crime that he clearly didn't commit. Wasn't it in Chicago, Kevin, at the, uh, the hotel? Los Angeles. Was it the Crown? Ambassador LA. Hotel in, in L.A.? Yeah. And it was owned by the Crown family? Yes. Yes, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's anyway, funny how, how, how these, uh, these organized crime outfits with links to a certain Middle Eastern state keep popping up in these kinds of cases. Yeah. Um so moving on to more uh, crimes of state, let's get to the vaccine news now. Now, this is not being broadcast live on YouTube because YouTube won't let us say anything that, by the standards of the moment, could possibly be considered medical misinformation. So this is the uncensored portion of the show. Uh, and I guess we're allowed to talk about the fact that a whole bunch of mainstream media stories this week started questioning the vaccine orthodoxy that's been forced down our throats for the past year. Um, Bloomberg says maybe the vaccines don't work as well as we thought. The BBC asks the question, the heretical question, is catching COVID now better than more vaccine? And the Daily Beast reports that the ultra-vaxxed state of Israel is now seeing record numbers of infections, uh, including among the doubly vaccinated people. So what happened? The mainstream is now allowed to question vaccines. Is, is this the end of the world? Am I dreaming? That's incredible. I, I think that the the number of adverse events is so much more than they thought because you have the, well, you, the MHRA in the UK where you have the yellow card reporting system. We've actually now discovered that that's par partially owned by Bill Gates. 
Uh, and then, of course, the, the VAERS reporting system in the United States. And was it a, it was a, it was a study at Harvard about 10 years ago. I forget the name of it, but it, it they estimated that something like between five and 10% of the actual adverse uh, events are, are reported. So that the numbers could be much higher than are actually being reported by, by quite a large factor. Um, I mean, this is coming at a time when the, the Australians have apparently just herded 24,000 kids into a stadium last week and essentially wouldn't allow the parents in and forcibly jabbed them. It sounds like what um, Pinochet did in, in Chile, herding exactly. young people into a stadium and, and getting them all shot. It's horrifying. And now in the UK, yesterday and today, they're talking about how the, they're going, the government is proposing to roll out the, the jabs for 12 year old children. I mean, it's been so predictable through the summer that they're going to be lowering the age limit every couple of weeks. They, so first they started up with the sort of 20 year olds, 18 and, and then 16 and it just progressively going down. And, um, Nothing has changed in terms of the, the data. I mean, they still don't have the data about the safety. The trials aren't due to finish till 2023. So why on earth anyone would want to give permission to jab their child? I just can't imagine. But people are because they're being so taken in by the relentless repetition in, in the mainstream media and what their well, friends are doing, actually, and whether it's convenient for them to travel. It's crazy. Right. And, and so these stories from mainstream, the question vaccines are actually the rule of the exception that proves the rule. We're still getting bombarded with 99.9% pro-vaccine propaganda in the mainstream. And the big pro-vaccine propaganda talking point this week was the FDA, quote unquote, full approval for the Pfizer shot. And it's based on about six months of incomplete data. And they changed the process uh, of approval. So now these vaccines that are clearly experimental because we won't know what's what's happened. In fact, we won't we won't, probably won't ever know. Um, we, but we won't even have an idea for another few years, at least, if there are long term problems. The reason we'll never know, Lucy, is that there are no control groups in this global experiment, as this article yeah. points out. Uh, now, I, I volunteer to be in the control group. I'm, I'm happy to participate in this experiment as long as I get to be in the control group. Right. I'm happy to accept the massive risks that they tell me are associated with being in the control group. I am ready to sacrifice my body for science. So how's that? <laughs> Good for you, Kevin. Good for you. Apparently, uh, this has been a sort of sleight of hand, this so-called full approval. It's not really a full approval at all, apparently, uh, because the FDA still is still owed reports by Pfizer, interim reports that are missing, including, for example, on this myocarditis issue that has been affecting especially young people, the myocarditis problems, young, young teenage boys, I think. And, um, so this isn't really a full approval, but the, uh, the mainstream media, of course, and the AMA seem to be stretching this and, and, trying to in, in imply that it is full approval, uh, but but it really isn't. I think Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, was saying that that it, it was essentially an extension of the Emergency Youth Use Authorization, the EUA, which is <clears throat> difficult to – it means that they still have a full liability cover, these companies. So they're able to keep pushing these things out without, without any liability. And it's difficult to stop that situation unless you can prove willful misconduct, which might potentially come. Because there, there was a letter last week uh, to Pfizer from, I can't remember who, it was, it was discussed by Karen Kingston uh, on Stu Peters again, um, 
where they were asking for a lot more data and, for example, the ingredients, because they're not currently published, I don't believe. So when she believes that once that is forthcoming, that potentially Pfizer could be be held liable for intentional harm to the American people. And of course, not just the Americans, but people around the world, potentially. And one of the biggest questions about these vaccines is, will they actually work in the long term to provide any kind of herd immunity or community protection? And the media and the authorities keep insinuating that they will, but they certainly don't know that. And in the next slide, we see that this latest study out of Vietnam seems to confirm what we're seeing in data from Israel and the UK and Gibraltar and other places with a lot of vaccinated people that mm-hmm. show that the vaccines are leaky. That is, they, they don't sterilize uh, the transmission. They allow for transmission. They allow people to get uh, heavily infected with COVID, but they don't suffer such bad effects. That's the, the, the advantage of, vac- of these vaccines is apparently that they do reduce the number of people who ha- get hospitalized and die, but they do allow people to get infected and carry very heavy viral loads. And this study is showing this uh, massive uh, viral load in vaccinated people. Of course, as my Provax uh, editor at Veterans Today, Gordon Duff, points out, this was done with the Sinovax, which he and others say is not as good as these Western vaccines. So still, bottom line here is that the questions about whether a non-sterilizing vaccine that allows people to still transmit the virus uh, brought out in a massive rollout to a huge chunk of the population during a pandemic is such mm-hmm. a good idea. And Vandenbosch and Luc Montagnier and others, uh, very well-qualified people who are horrified by this, say it's a terrible idea. So I guess the jury is still out, and maybe we'll eventually find out. Yes, and Peter McCullough, who wrote the article, I believe he's the MD from Texas, who's a mm-hmm. specialist in cardiology, He's talked quite a lot also about the, the spike proteins and the, the nano clots that are developing within the vaccine, within the body after they are introduced through the vaccination. Uh, and of course, as you were saying, Israel, it's one of the most heavily vaccinated countries. Iceland apparently is as well, but yet they've both had quite bad breakouts of so-called COVID. So, um, it seems that yeah, that the vaccine is not necessarily working and that there is still transmission amongst people after they've been vaccinated. So therefore, it begs the question, is it really worth taking the risk that you might be one of the people who ends up, you know, either um, with a, with a you know, dying very quickly, as quite a lot of old people have, or um, with, with long-term problems associated with spike protein and, and so on. So, I, you know, I'd say it's still, it's not, from my own point of view, I wouldn't be one who's going to be taking a vaccination, whether or not it's going to make life easier for travel. I, I value my health too much. Right. Well, I'm heading to San Francisco for the 9-11 Film Festival in Oakland. And in San Francisco, I guess I, they're saying that you won't be allowed to enter restaurants and, and theaters if you don't have some kind of vaccine passport. So I'll find out, you know, whether that is being enforced. Maybe I can make some brief YouTubes on trying to get into places um, without a vaccine passport. Anyway, let, let's move on to the uncensored part of the show, okay? We, we've just finished the uh, part that we're not allowed to broadcast on YouTube. That's the stuff that YouTube might consider medical misinformation, which is basically mm-hmm. a free and frank discussion of the issues around uh, COVID and vaccines and things like that. But let's move on to the big story of this week, which is, of course, Afghanistan. 
And I thought the most important story was not being emphasized in most of the mainstream media. Uh, that is, the Taliban is sticking to their guns and saying there's no evidence that al-Qaeda or bin Laden had anything to do with 9-11. The U.S. never showed us any evidence. They still haven't. There is no such evidence because, well, the implication being, of course, that bin Laden and al-Qaeda were innocent. They didn't do it. They had nothing to do with it. It was a false flag. I think the Taliban needs to get even more forthright about this and demand an international investigation into the controlled demolition of the World Trade Center. And I've been trying to get that message to Pakistan and to Afghanistan. And I, I called for this uh, two weeks ago, and I'm glad to see they've at least gone this far. Yes, and apparently Hamid Gul after 9-11, he also, uh, in, I think he did an interview with, with Bonnie Faulkner, uh, and he also denied that Pakistan, well, that the Afghans and the Taliban had, had responsibility for 9-11, as did Osama bin Laden before he died. So, um, yes, let's hope that they continue pressing for this. It seems that they're in quite a strong position now, and um, they're aligning more with different countries in, in, in the East. And let's hope that they continue to get this message out, push this message, because it, it needs to come out. Well, we might have to move to Afghanistan to have free speech about that issue, because yeah. they're crushing us here in the United States. Spike Lee uh, this week was uh, intimidated and bullied into recutting his new 9-11 film, which had originally included something like 45 full minutes of very positive coverage of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. And then the usual suspects crucified him. And now the film has been spiked. And isn't it interesting, Lucy, that all of these uh, hit pieces on Spike Lee raving and threatening and bullying and trying to force him to recut his film, which he finally did, we're all coming from a certain demographic. Right. I mean, yeah. how can, you know, are they trying to turn all every sane person on earth into a raving anti-Semite? It sometimes well, seems that way. They're using the same old modus, operand, modus operandi in that they're apparently going to HBO and Warner and, and pushing them, asking representatives of those two companies what they feel about Lee and about Richard Gage's ideas about 9-11 and COVID-19 and why why these weren't included in the film and whether or not promoting Richard Gage's work might be leading his viewers to listen to the wrong people about both catastrophes. So both they're, they're equating both 9-11 and COVID together. Uh, so they've been clearly pushing to get that pulled. And it seems that they, they've, they've had success in that. And now Lee apparently on August 25th said, I'm back in the editing room and look at the eighth and final chapter of NYC Epicenters 9-11 to 2021 and a half. I respect you to ask to hold your judgment till you see the final cut. So it really, it reminds me of Stanley Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut, which he also apparently had problems with the final cut and he died very soon afterward. He didn't want to cut that. And he died uh, before the film was shown, and and the film was cut. Uh, he didn't want it cut, but it was cut. So uh, yeah, maybe Spike Lee got it, learned a lesson from that, just like presidents after JFK got a lesson from yeah. what happened to him. Um, but still, uh, I, I'm really disappointed in Spike Lee for this because we see this pattern over and over, where people who should know better back down and apologize 
to these genocide perpetrators who all should be in prison, if not worse. I mean, all of them. And I'm talking <laughs> about the propagandists, the people behind these articles mm-hmm. bullying Spike Lee into retracting this truthful content from his documentary. These people are mm-hmm. propagandists for genocide, propagandists for war crimes, and propagandists for the people who blew up the World Trade Center and murdered 3,000 Americans. They are traitors, and jail and prison for life would be way too good for them. Mm, absolutely. No, I, I agree with you. Totally agree. And uh, some other folks who would probably agree with that are the those among the many victims of 9-11 who lost uh, the people that lost family members on 9-11, people like the family of Jeff Campbell. Uh, his uh, Jeff Campbell was killed in the 9-11 terror attacks. His whole family is now on board. Uh, and here is the Daily Mail pointing out that the Campbells are, quote, unquote, making the astonishing claim that the World Trade Center towers in New York were laced with explosives provoking their collapse. Now, I also understand they're making the astonishing claim that the Earth is spherical, the sun appears to run. Can't hear you, Kevin. Well, it looks like uh, they've managed to manage to cut Kevin off. Um, so, so yes, we seem to be continuing. Sorry, I, 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 uh, on the Jeff Campbell thing, I think the real smoking gun is the the hard forensic evidence of the pre-plane impact explosions in the basement of World Trade Center One and World Trade Center Two, and it seems that that evidence, that hard forensic evidence was actually picked up by the Daily Express, which is really good news. Uh, and that has, that will be included by the lawyers committee in their grand jury petition to the New York U.S. attorney, uh, which has inf- also informed the filing by Jeff Campbell's family about the death of his brother and the need for a new inquest. So um, moving on, the next story, uh, the the horrendous attack that took place in Kabul airport two nights ago, uh, where 13 U.S. troops were killed. I think they were Marines and overall about 170 people, many, many Afghans who were waiting outside the airport, hoping to get on flights to evacuate Kabul, illustrates the apocalyptic and horrendous finale to the debacle that has been the 20-year catastrophe in Afghanistan. And um, this has been attributed to a group known as ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan, which is the sort of wider Iran area, Khorasan, Afghan-Iran area across the borders. And um, it's all, to me, it, it seems very convenient, rather convenient. Uh, ISIS-K, the, the so-called planner of this attack, which killed all these people, they're attributing, attributing it to one man, who was apparently taken out by a drone strike last night in Jalalabad, eastern Afghanistan. Uh, his last name was Lugari. 
they're they're implying that 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 he was responsible. I think it's again it's the lone gunman. It's it's all too convenient, and of course, killing him means that no evidence has to be collected, and um, uh, geopolitical and political objectives, I believe, will be served. And I think those include finding a common enemy. So it's as though the West is now trying to neutralize the, the Taliban somewhat and, and invoking ISIS again as, as the real enemy. And so who who are Islamic State? Who is uh, this I, ISIS-K <clears throat> group? Anatole Levin has done a, a piece, which I think is 12A, which is coming up. I don't know if Kevin is still... Yeah, yeah. Hi, Lucy. I'm, I'm back. Hi, Kevin. I, yeah, I got hi. a weird message that said I was under denial of service attack. And so, okay. I was going yeah. ahead without you. Hope that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, so you're talking about ISIS-K, which sounds like some yes. new breakfast cereal or maybe a new variant <laughs> of the virus. Exactly. You know, exactly. We're, next, we're going to have to give up our freedom because of the emergence of COVID-19-K. That's right. And then I mean, ISIS, the <laughs> ISIS variants and COVID variants. Yeah, exactly. Right. They're all they're the gift that keeps on giving, aren't they? ISIS K and COVID 19 K um, will merge into a whole new ISIS COVID 19 K virus that not only will blow up your cells and make little copies of it, it's yes. bearded and black flag waving head shopping self, but it'll blow up you too. Now, if that doesn't <laughs> scare you into giving up your freedom, what will? Exactly. Maybe another cat video? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, ISIS K, give me a break. So, yes, exactly. Give me a break. I mean, it's just all too obvious, isn't it, Kevin? Just, you know, and the, the, the guy's already dead. He's been killed by a drone strike. Um, it's, uh, I mean, the Afghans were never suicide bombers. They, they weren't suicide bombers. So this is totally introduced from the outside. And whether these are people, whether this guy or someone else was involved and it was MK Ultra, but what's interesting is the Taliban did they did emphasize that they were not controlling the road to the airport. That road has been controlled for at least the last week by the British and the Americans. And it's not easy. I mean, of course, there were many, many people being pushed in there. I mean, who knows who all these people are? But I also heard a few days ago, it was strictly forbidden to film what was going on in those queues. So people were not allowed to use their cameras to film anything. And I hadn't seen films uh, so people were potentially complying with that. So, you know, maybe maybe that was in advance of of this this hit, basically. But it, it's a horrendous, very evil strike on innocent civilians, and has turned an apocalyptic situation into pure hell. I could imagine for the poor people there. Um, so where are we now? Well, we this, this article was speculating oh, yes. that that ISIS K was basically a bunch of ne'er do wells who don't like the Taliban, and yeah. then the next slide. Uh, from Strategic Culture. You just sent this in, and I thought yeah. this was a great article. I'm glad you sent it. It's yeah. pointing out the geostrategic ramifications of all of this and showing that ISIS-K is presumably working for the U.S., trying to prevent Afghanistan from stabilizing and becoming the linchpin of a new order in the region. Yes, exactly. I mean, a bit like Thierry, my son, says, and we're going to get to him later, but uh, the ISIS is a tool. Uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are a tool of the West rather than the West's enemy. Um, but this this uh, Alistair Crook article, uh, Alistair Crook, I think, was a former intelligence uh, operative of the UK, but he, he writes very well for strategic culture. I, and he he opens up by talking about the uh, the five stages of grief uh, that took place amongst the sort of Tory establishment in London. And so you have this this chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat, who was 
who became an MP and was then immediately chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, I mean, very, very quickly promoted. And his ridiculous statement, I didn't see his speech last week, but everyone was lauding it in the British Tory press, saying how wonderful it was. But, you know, he was talking about how we mustn't give up the gains of the last 20 years. I mean, does this is this guy on Planet X? What gains? Uh, you know, there are no gains. Well, yeah, wait, wait a minute, Lucy. In the next slide, we see some gains. There, there are okay. dogs and cats. Dogs yes. and cats in Kabul. Those kind of gains. And, Thank and that's, you. And yeah, that's are, are we protecting those gains enough by evacuating all of the dogs and the cats? Well, Muse the cat says, <laughs> "Meow, I don't know about dogs, but cats should definitely have priority over humans who committed the supreme war crime of invading and occupying someone else's country or cooperating mm-hmm. with that occupation." Meow. So that's yeah. that's what Muse the cat says. So, so this is a huge scandal in the UK now. Well, so it should be. I mean, to to me, I picked out that article because I just thought it illustrated the hubris of the whole adventure in Afghanistan and the complete delusion that that the the colonialists who are now living in Kabul have about where they are. I mean, they seem not to know where they are. There was a good description of what's been going on in Kabul by Max Kaiser, of all people, on RT. And he said the 20-year fraternity party has come to an end in in Afghanistan. And that's exactly what it, it, it has been. And this story, this guy, I mean, he's an ex-Marine. He set up a sort of animal sanctuary. It's good for him. But to my amazement, you know, he was commandeering a plane and trying to get out 200 animals out of Kabul airport. Absolutely incredible. When you think that, well, Muslims don't really even like dogs. Uh, and he's, they they have been valued over and above Afghan people. And even his own staff didn't manage to get out. Uh, I mean, the, the whole story of the people who did leave and those who were left behind is a complete and utter scandal. Uh, I've had someone in touch with me in the last few days in Afghanistan who's trying to get his family out because they get, gave evidence in a trial against a warlord and the trial took place in London. And um, these people have been left behind. And it seems that the people who have been prioritized for evacuation have had some kind of it's been a sort of patronage system, potentially. It's also been very chaotic. But I think that there are going to be a lot of questions that have to be asked about who's been left behind and who hasn't been left behind and whether or not it's true that lists of translators and interpreters have been. I found it very odd that I heard, I think my mum or someone was watching Fox News in our house, and there was a story about how there was a list of interpreters left behind in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. But then there was a second story uh, that apparently appeared in the Times, the British Times, about a list of interpreters also found in the British Embassy in Kabul uh, with their names and addresses. So, I, you know, again, I, I find these kind of stories, it's a little questionable. What, it, what is being served by, by talking about this? Is it really true that these, can they really have been so stupid that they would have left hard copies or any sort of copies on computers of names of people who'd been helping the occupation that's been going on for 20 years? Yeah, well, you really can't overestimate their stupidity, really, of, of the whole project and, and, and the blowing up the World Trade Center to start it. It's all just completely insane. And here, here's your article that appeared in The Spectator. And we did talk about that a little bit last week. But since you wrote it, I thought you should get a chance to talk about it, too. Oh, thank you. I didn't know you talked about it last week. I've, I have to watch last week. Um, yes, I mean, I just did a short article on how I was just so amazed that people were shocked about the sudden end of, of, of the regime of Ashraf Ghani. Um, Ashraf Ghani, who was always lauded by the West, uh, by, by the CIA, by the, the British, and essentially had no connection with the tribes, even with his own tribe, who's a Kuchi. And, um, 
they just saw him as a kind of foreigner from Washington. I don't think he'd been involved at all during the anti-Soviet jihad. And he was really seen as a Washington World Bank technocrat. And of course, when he left, he apparently had $180 million with him and, and left more on the, on the tarmac. But again, I just bring up the, the story that I'd written in, in my book, this book, which I, you know, I've talked about in your show before, Kevin, um, <clears throat> the Afghan solution, which was, I, I explain in this article that what happened with the folding of the regime in, in Kabul recently was like an inverse of, of what Abdul Haq was trying to achieve 20 years ago with, with his plan to, uh, collapse the Taliban regime from within. Hey, listen, and, hold up the book again because we have a full yeah. picture of you now. There we go. So that yeah, was, solution. that was my investigation of the Abdul Haq plan and, um, why I felt that this was really something that had to be understood. But of course, I've, I had to self-publish the book. I had a lot of problems getting any um, write-ups in the mainstream media. I had to really push for it. And um, I think the you got into was, The Spectator. I, I got an article in The Spectator recently, and I got an article in The Spectator through somebody who pulled a string for me there back in 2012 or 2011. But apart from that, I, I really had to push for every little mention that I got. It was very difficult. And yet you had all these 26-year-old soldiers who'd been there for sort of all of three months, six months, pushing out their kind of soldiers' memoirs of, of Afghanistan. Uh, and everyone was rushing to embrace them. And, and I had my story of being there pre and post 9-11 as working under the Taliban when bin Laden was in Kandahar and um, living with a tribal family in eastern Afghanistan in Jalalabad, family who'd been Mujahideen leaders, and following up the story of Abdul Haq, who had, I think, this incredible understanding because he'd been a very successful commander uh, in the anti-Soviet war and wanted to bring back the former king and had also involved Ahmed Shah Massoud. And yet the CIA and the British belittled him, demeaned him in, in publications like Private Eye. Well, he wouldn't and take orders from them. Absolutely. But they ultimately, they didn't want him. He was in their way. They had their plan, I think, which was to, to reinstate Afghanistan as a narco state, as a sort of CIA uh, military, American military outpost in uh, the Far East or in, in South Central Asia. And he was going to get in their way. And as you say, he was a he was a straight talker and much respected. So they certainly didn't want him around. So he didn't last longer than a few weeks and was dead by the end of October 2001 once he started um, leading his men into eastern Afghanistan after having asked the West not to bomb Afghanistan, which, of course, they ignored and started the bombing. And he understood that bombing would change the whole political situation overnight, that it would mean that people he'd engaged to as sleeper cells within the regime would leave their posts and go back to their families. And that way it was going to be very difficult to to initiate this collapse, which I believe he would have done because the cities in the south, the whole sway from the Gardas, Ghazni, Jalalabad, Kandahar, they all fell to his men. Uh, and of course, MI6 tried to take credit for that <laughs> in some of the articles that appeared in, in late 2001. So, um, yes, uh, interesting story. And I just find what happened last week to be the, the inverse, really, of what he was trying to, to achieve. He understood that the regime had become so unpopular that it would shatter like a crystal, the Taliban I'm talking about. Well, the same is what's happened with the Ashraf Ghani regime, uh, which was formerly the regime of Hamid Karzai, 
the the the, the foreigner backed um, Potemkin vanity project, as I describe in that piece, has has collapsed and uh, collapsed very quickly. And what I find really incredible is that you have people like Lise Doucette of the BBC arriving in Kabul a few days ago and saying, gosh, everyone's so surprised that it collapsed so quickly. Well, come on, Lise, we all know that you really know the truth. So what narrative are you trying to feed the public in the West? You knew that this has been unpopular for the last 15 years and it's been building and building and the Afghan National Army were never going to be able to stand up. So as soon as the, the U.S. air power was withdrawn in, uh, was it the 2nd of August or the 2nd of July, that was just really a matter of time before Kabul fell too. Well, if anyone tries to tell us that we didn't accomplish anything in Afghanistan, I think um, as we move to the next slide, what we can uh, tell, re- respond is that, well, we actually did accomplish something. We gave the Taliban uh, 2,000 U.S. Humvees, uh, 40 aircraft, including Blackhawks, scout attack helicopters, and military drones, 600,000 M16 assault rifles and other infantry weapons, 162,000 pieces of communications equipment, and 16,000 night vision goggles. I guess you could have a lot of fun at night with night vision goggles. All of this has been gifted by the Pentagon to the Afghan forces, but ultimately to the Taliban. So, right. yeah, we accomplished something. Here's the Taliban trolling us um, in, as well they might. Yes, it does look like a very staged photo of that. I wonder who was responsible for that idea. But, yes, very provocative. And, of course, you know, what's interesting is the, the Brown University's um, Cost of War project estimates, I think, what's it, $2.3 trillion in Afghanistan spent over 20 years. That's the Cost of War project. And um, yet there was only something like nine billion left in the Afghan Central Bank when when the regime went down. So where has all that money gone? I mean, Kevin, I think it must have gone back into all those military supply contracts. Where else could it have gone? I mean, that's a huge amount of money. It's extraordinary. Yeah, we're going to get to that uh, war profits uh, story in a little bit. Um, Let's quickly skip over this Spiegel story about the predictable failure in Afghanistan, which is pretty much what you're what you said too. Um, the one thing in this story that I thought was interesting was that the Taliban had infiltrated Kabul starting last spring. The U.S. had zero on-the-ground intelligence anywhere in the whole country. Drones everywhere, spy satellites looking, you know, at every little speck of dust in the country. But they didn't have the faintest idea what was even going on. Uh, Of course they did. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. Plausible deniability, Kevin, isn't it? (laughs) I guess so. So how about the Muslim reaction? Let's start with Hassan Nasrallah. Uh, of Hezbollah. Uh, he calls this the worst debacle in U.S. history. He says they you know, made a, a ridiculous strategic mistake in not forming a transitional government. The U.S. could have formed a transitional government uh, and forced the Taliban, uh, or rather forced the, uh, their puppet regime to do that, and uh, it never did. And I, I thought one of the nice things in this article was the insert from Syrian Girl pointing out that if the U.S. stopped supporting Israel tomorrow, Tel Aviv would fall faster than Kabul. <laughs> and uh, and Hassan Nasrallah also points out that unlike the United States, Iran never abandoned its allies. So I thought there were some, some gems in this article. Yes, it was interesting. I thought it was very significant to put that into because he's obviously such a – a tower of strength in, in the Middle East, in Lebanon. And it's just, it's very interesting to have that, that reaction from the Muslim world. It just confirms that this is a huge debacle. This isn't some kind of long thought out 
plan to hand over power to a different regime. I don't, I don't really buy that theory that, that this is just the U.S. passing off power to the Taliban and that they're going to continue to work through them. I believe this has been a huge strategic realignment and that, that the Taliban have been cultivating relations now with China, Russia, Pakistan, and so on. And, and go, just briefly going back to that piece by, um, Alistair Crook, he talks about the various dominoes that, that were falling, that have fallen with, with the collapse of the, this regime. And, uh, you know, he, he talks about Iran's strategic repositioning, mm. uh, in terms of Russia and China. The, um, JCPOA is the second domino because the Iran has declined to agree this draft Vienna agreement. And then, um, during the route of Kabul, apparently China and Af China and Russia were closing the airspace over northern Afghanistan because they were undertaking a military exercise, which is hugely significant. And finally, apparently Pakistan, the fourth domino, declined to host any military presence in its territory. So, and then the last domino is that uh, Iran has been invited to join the Shanghai, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So huge strate strategic realignment. And obviously Nasrallah, uh, he gets that. He gets it completely. Yeah, and this is a, a complete strategic failure for the U.S., showing that when the Zionists hijacked the U.S. military by blowing up the World Trade Center in 2001, trying to save their settler colonial regime occupying Palestine, yeah. they really put a stake through the heart of the American empire. And so this is really kind of just the uh, inevitable uh, playing out of that. Eric Wahlberg, a Canadian Muslim, uh, calls this divine justice, yeah. and he thinks that the era of unilateral American empire, or even just, you know, American empire period, which began in 1945, has now ended in 2021. Would you uh, agree that that it's the graveyard of empires for the U.S. now in a similar way that it was for the Russians? I, I would, actually, because I think, I mean, if you look at what's going on with the economy in the U.S., the, the infrastructure, there's so much, there's so many problems already in the U.S., and you're, you're coming to the end of this sort of debt-based um what has been kind of fake growth based on debt and just with what I've been saying about the strategic realignment in, in, in the West, in the East of the world. Um, I, I'd say that this could well be the, the beginning of the end of, of the American empire. I'm sure they're going to carry on like a, you know, like a dying kind of um, hydra. They will, they will try to lash out, but, and, and, and I believe are with these false flag attacks. And in fact, Alistair Crook in his article, foresaw he wrote that article on the 23rd of, of august and he foresaw that there would be false flag attacks and he pretty much said that they would be coming <laughs> where they would be coming from um yeah that, that was a very yeah. uh, uh strong uh article for somebody i always thought alistair cook was more relatively mainstream yes i did too i thought i found this article really exciting actually as, as i said to you yeah we yeah, had to was, include was it <laughs> right yeah good to see you. Well, uh, now, of course, after you lose a war, your war criminals get prosecuted and sometimes executed. So how about mm. our war criminals? Here's a war criminal confessing in the Washington Post. You actually have to kind of feel sorry for him. Right. Um, still Taliban fighters from an air-conditioned room. Did it help? And he talks about, well, every day I just clocked in and I killed men for the next eight hours. He says he directed 250 airstrikes, killing 304 Taliban members and 54 wounded. He doesn't mention the innocent or quote unquote innocent people because, of course, Taliban soldiers are innocent, too. They're just trying to defend their country. But uh, this guy, of course, is probably far from the worst of the war, war criminals. 
but it really is disgusting and he knows it. You know, you can sense it from the article yeah. how, how just utterly disgusting it is for these cowardly so-called soldiers to be murdering people from their safe spaces using technology. What a bunch of creeps and worthless cowardly scumbags. You know, they're worse than war criminals. They're, they're scum of the earth. Mm. If you have any honor and you're going to fight to defend your people, you go out and lay your life on the line. You don't follow that line from, I forget which American general it was, Patton or somebody, who said, your job isn't to die for your country, it's to make the other bastard die for his. Well, that attitude is the attitude of uh, pathetic, cowardly psychopaths, which is mm. unfortunately what Americans have become. I mean, most of these people are gamers, aren't they, that do these drone strikes? They, they, they like to hire gamers, I understand. So they're not real soldiers. There's no honor in it. It's not like the real battlefield, is it? Yeah, it's, it's the most dishonorable thing you could ever do. I mean, I have a lot more respect for, you know, serial killers like Charlie Manson and John Wayne Gacy than I have for these guys who murder people in drone strikes. And, mm -hmm. and they should get at least the same kind of treatment that Gacy got. Um, and, and in the next slide, we have, uh, the Afghanistan officials who were involved in these horrific, uh, kinds of, you know, war crimes and torture and things like that. Of course, a lot of this was backed by the Americans in this article in Defend yeah. Democracy Press doesn't really get into much of that, but we had CIA death squads and torture squads. We had, um, you know, this, these collateral murder kinds of situations where just to totally random civilians were being slaughtered for sport. And of course we had Dostum the Afghan warlord working with the Americans who under CIA command, apparently, or with at least CIA co-command murdered many thousands of Taliban soldiers uh, in 2001 by locking them into cargo containers and then mm -hmm. leaving them to die in the broiling sun. Uh, yes. These, these war crimes, will we ever hold these people accountable? Yeah, that was Dashti Laili. I mean, the UN initially wanted to have some form of accountability, but that was very quickly, and particularly for that that disgusting episode that happened in late 2001 with Dostum, who was instrumentalized, of course, by the CIA to to undertake these grotesque uh, massacres. I mean, there was also the massacre, I believe, in the, what was the name of his castle? I forget. There was Dashti Laili. And then the, I remember because I was sitting in Islamabad working for the World Food Programme, having to write reports on the regional situation as they were delivering food and what was the security. And this siege was going on in one of Dostum's hideouts. And there are all these Talibs in, inside, including young boys and including John Walker Lind, I think. Right. And I was saying to my boss at the time, but why aren't you, the UN, doing something about this? You should stop this. And he said, well, we can't take, we can't take uh, over all these prisoners. And I just thought that was a pathetic response. I mean, they were driving them to their death. And I think when they flooded out, I can't quite remember what happened in that, in that fortress. But there were two things. There was that fortress. And I think the Americans sent bombs in there. And then there were the, all those Talibs who were driven in those containers out to the desert. And then I think they riddled it with bullets because they said we can't breathe. So they literally shot into the side of the containers and the people just died the most horrendous death and were put into mass graves. And then Physicians for Human Rights, Newsweek did an article on it in late 2002. And it was a scandal and it was a big piece. Um, but thereafter, the UN was effectively neutered. I know because I had friends who were working in uh, UNAMA, which was the political arm of the UN. 
And we talked about this and, and they were not allowed to start any kind of investigations and neither was the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission who also wanted to have some form of truth and reconciliation and accounting for previous egregious um, rights abuses by the people who we now called our allies. This was just not allowed, obviously. It was not going to happen. Well, I think the Taliban were uh, incredibly merciful uh, to allow Americans and their helpers to escape any of them rather than putting them in cargo containers and going and sticking them out in that whirling sun as happened to thousands of their own soldiers. So uh, shout out to the Taliban for their kindness and mercy. Um, Well, how about the real war criminals, the profiteers? 10,000 in defense stocks, quote unquote, defense stocks um, 20 years ago is now worth 100,000. That's way ahead of the market. Uh, Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, those guys won. They, they didn't, you know, America lost, uh, all kinds of people lost, Afghanistan lost, everybody lost except for these creeps who got rich off it. So I say they're the ones who really should be put in the cargo containers. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember when I was coming to the end of writing my book and I was here in Geneva and I showed it to some possibly former CIA. I'm not sure. They were all retired Americans here. And I said, could you just read it before I publish it and give me your reaction? And then during discussion, I said, how could the U.S. with all its resources have totally screwed up Afghanistan and not built a a stable country in the Middle East, a stable functioning democracy? I was still pretty naive at the time. And he just said to me, Lucy, that it is a huge success. It's a real success, but you have to follow the money. It's a success for those people who are making money out of the military industrial complex. And he referred me to Frida Berrigan, I think it was. And so I um, rather belatedly uh, started to lose some of my naivety about what's going on and understand that, yes, this was exactly as it had been planned. And I think that's why you still have some of these British generals uh, talking about, well, they're talking about we have to stay in. I mean, Tom Tugendhat and uh, I can't remember the name of all these generals, but they're very mediocre people, um, all talking about how we have to build on the success of the last 20 years and stay in Afghanistan. Oh, what, what are they hoping for? Is it the revolving door with their contracts with Boeing, like, you know, Sherrod Cooper Coles, who was the, the UK ambassador, left Afghanistan, goes straight out to work for Boeing and, and the Saudis. Um, these people are all on a gravy train, and that has to be examined, and it has to be stopped because it's totally counterproductive. It's There's nothing democratic or human rights orientated about it. It's disgusting. Uh, it really is. And it, it needs it to be, yeah. the the hell, to, be held to account. Yeah. yeah. Will it, it take something like the U.S. collapsing into civil war before we finally get rid of this military industrial complex? I don't know. But we should have known the truth yeah. about Afghanistan. And those of us who are paying attention have known the truth. And in the next article, uh, we have uh, Kristen Hraftenson of WikiLeaks quoted about how WikiLeaks released the Afghan war diaries 11 years ago with 91,000 documents. And then finally, in 2019, the Washington Post released the Afghan papers. So that pretty much proved what we all knew anyway, which was that the U.S. authorities were lying through their teeth about everything they told us about Afghanistan the whole time. And uh, yet, so Assange is being tortured to death in prison for the crime of telling us the truth years and years and years ago. Yeah, it's horrendous. I mean, it was the Afghan war diaries were released in 2011, I, I believe. So we had 
huge amount of the story already there. I mean, the Pentagon Papers brought about quite a swift end to the to war in Vietnam, didn't they? I mean, how long did it go on for after they were released? This has lasted another 10 years, and we have known, but as you say, the media has covered it up. Yeah, yeah. The, the real media is WikiLeaks and False Flag Weekly News and, and Uns.com and, and all of yeah. the rest of the alternative media. And yeah. why, why people believe the mainstream anymore, I, I don't know. Uh, well, how about Moon of Alabama? They're another good alternative outlet uh, publishing this piece on the um, contradictions here when they're desperate, that the Western media is desperate to find some excuse to make the Taliban look bad and, and say, oh, yeah, they're going to execute all these nice Afghans who worked with the Americans. In fact, the Taliban yeah. offered amnesty to all of these traitors who betrayed their country by working with these scumbag invaders who were murdering uh, good people from the safety and security of their air-conditioned drone bases. And yet the Taliban mm-hmm. is mercifully allowing these people to escape and guaranteeing their safety. And the Western media is desperate to contradict that. So they pull up some three-month-old letter before the mm-hmm. Taliban guarantee of safety, threatening one of the collaborators. So that if that's the best argument they have, that the Taliban are being less than merciful to the war criminal collaborators, uh, they don't have much of a case. Mm. I mean, it's difficult to say that they're all war criminal collaborators, Kevin, because they were living on the breadline. I mean, these people, when I first went to Afghanistan, they'd had a, well, almost four years of drought and people had had to sell up all their possessions and move to camps. They'd, they'd lost their land and their animals because they were really, really vulnerable. They had nothing. So I don't blame people for, for becoming translators and interpreters because they didn't have a buffer. They didn't have anything else. Um, I do. And of course, the Taliban are not all Af- Afghan either. You know, they are a mixture. Many of them are rural Afghans from the south. And so you do have that difficulty of different tribes, different tribal groups, but some of them come from, from Pakistan or from the tribal areas. So it is, it is a tricky, slightly tricky situation. But what I did see was even in 2005, when I was in Kandahar, for example, talking to people there, they said, we don't want your Western style democracy because it's just bringing corruption. We'd rather have Taliban style Sharia law. And, um, and that's not, I, I don't think that was limited to Kandahar. I think that's also been in the North and, and so on because of the partners that the West had in Afghanistan who were very corrupt. Even this guy, Ashraf Ghani, who, who came across as clean and slick and, and, and so on. Um, they were all corrupt up to their ears, these, these people that, that, that we installed. So we, I don't say that we, completely blame the Afghans. I do blame CNN, though, and I blame BBC World and BBC and so on, because these so-called journalists, these propagandists, they are the ones who I would like to see being held accountable because they have uh, sat on their very well-paid jobs uh, in their nice hotels and so on, and they have lied to the Western public for 20 years, some of them. And a lot of the, the, the people that I knew who I thought were working in-house for the New York Times or the Times or the Telegraph or the Economist, I believe that most of them were working for intelligence. These are not people who get given these nice, cozy positions unless they have deep links with the intelligence services. And many of the people who shaped the narrative of the Afghan war were uh, essentially shaping the narrative for, for the intelligence agencies. And, that, and that's exactly what the next story is about. 
So yeah. this, the CIA uh, report that was leaked by WikiLeaks saying we're going to use feminism to reduce Western opposition to occupation. Um, and, and, and then that CIA directive gets played mm-hmm. out in the New York Times, which was uh, among the chief yeah. architects constructing the belief in a phantom feminist war, according to this article in Sputnik. Yeah, I mean, they totally used the whole issue of women and girls' education and, and human rights to manufacture consent for the war amongst the public in the West. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't go and bomb people's villages and bring back warlords. Uh, if you really are there, if you're really there for women's rights, this was purely about manufacturing consent. It wasn't about making gains for women. And there have been some small gains. And I, I went, I was involved with uh, writing a report on a, on girls' schools projects back in 2013. And there have been some gains, but many of the gains have been fairly marginal, actually, because a lot of the teachers weren't coming to school. They weren't being paid. The ministers and the ministries who were receiving the money from the West for the salaries of the teachers were holding the money, taking it, putting it into property in Dubai rather than paying uh, the people to teach the girls. Uh, so a lot of the gains have been um, a little um, superficial, we could say, and unsustainable, I'm afraid, because we've worked, we haven't worked with the grain of, of the Afghan culture and society. We've tried to impose our own form of, um, so-called westernized democracy or western ideals on onto a society that's completely alien to us so that is one of the biggest lies about afghanistan in the mainstream media is that this this is a war to liberate women and mm. terry mason in the next article gives us a list of seven lies and i thought the first two or three were maybe the biggest ones he says that of course this was all planned before 9-11 it wasn't yeah. really a response to 9-11 to go after the perpetrators as they're still pretending and yeah. the second big lie was that Al-Qaeda was our enemy. No, it's all CIA, duh. It's always been an American patsy or a cat's paw. And uh, finally, that the whole counter-terror mission, he says, is a big lie. In fact, the U.S. is behind terrorism here and everywhere else. And then he goes on with a bunch more lies. Uh, mm. But that, that's a, that's a good, a good place to stop for now. Yeah. yeah, it's a very good piece, that one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he, he's a, he's a good analyst. I don't agree with him about everything, and I have a very different worldview from his. But I think he gets a lot mm. right, and he got a lot about nine eleven right. His maybe getting some things wrong about nine eleven too, but at least he was he figured out that it was a, an inside job coup d'état almost immediately. Mm. He informed Jacques Chirac, the then president of France, and Chirac became the world's highest placed nine eleven truther, although he never wow. came out in public, and uh, that's why he didn't cooperate with the U.S. invasions. And, right. and that, Mason points that out here. He said, it wasn't until Sarkozy came in that the French finally joined the U.S. crusade against Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, now the blame grit game is, is going full scale. Uh, who caused this disaster? Well, uh, Blair says it's Biden. Biden was an imbecile for leading, leaving <laughs> Afghanistan. That's actually kind of funny to have, uh, have the poodle, you know, calling his master an imbecile. I, I guess he must be rabid. <laughs> He's looking dreadful these days. Have you seen him? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's speaking too much. <laughs> yes, and yes, he's described as ghoulish by by UK column. But I mean, his hair's all sort of long and and greasy, and he's just looking madder than ever. He's just dreadful. and he's raving about how how radical Islam is rising, uh, and and how now every jihadist group in the world is cheering. Uh, so so he he actually somehow got on board on this extreme Islamophobic. Mm. gravy train long ago 
you know, I guess the neocons are paying him for it or something, but I think he really believes it. He, he really is terrified uh, well, by the Islamic awakening. I mean, I've noticed there are a few British politicians and these military people who are trying to reaffirm the original narrative about the 19 hijackers and, and the Twin Towers and never allowing Afghanistan to become the uh, the place where al-Qaeda was uh, given protection. And, and I, you can see them rolling the same old jaded narrative out again. It was, I think it was Colonel Richard Kemp who I saw today. Uh, again, I just thought you're ridiculous. Uh, how can people still not get what's been going on for the last 20 years? We, we, we can't reprise this. And I, I tackled one of them on Twitter, Tobias Elwood, today. And I told him he needed, he needed to look at the architects and engineers and, and stop banging on about how um, the Afghans provided shelter to bin Laden. What a jaded narrative. But even Biden, who uh, in, in the next slide we see, uh, actually gave a less than horrendous uh, talk on this a lot yes. of it I, I think he was right you know that basically he faced the fact that this whole thing was a disaster from the get-go and but then he has to repeat the same old lie our only yeah. vital interest in afghanistan remains what it has always been preventing a terrorist attack on the american homeland well, there's never been a terrorist attack on the american homeland from afghanistan and there never will be mm. that's all a, a big lie and biden i guess has to just keep repeating the same lie that all the other politicians do yeah, I thought his remarks were very fair, and he was re reaffirming what the the U.S. said at the beginning, which was that, that their mission was not about nation building, that they wanted to rout Al Qaeda and so on, uh, but we were not about nation building. So I don't know why. I mean, in the U.K., they've of course piled onto him, and all the establishment has turned against Biden. Obviously, they want to get him out for the installation of Harris, for whatever the reason is about that, but. Um, and I, I wonder whether it was the UK that tried to to say that the Americans ought to be doing nation building because the UK has always been a bit obsessed with this. Um, but the Americans were, yeah, pretty pretty um, honest, quite brutally honest about how they weren't there to do nation building. So Blair is blaming Biden. Biden is blaming the nation builders, and now we have uh, McMaster blaming Pompeo for signing the surrender agreement. So they're, they're circling the wagons and, and shooting each other. It's great. I love it. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, uh, look at that. Yeah. And, and so who's to blame for the 80% of Afghanistan's budget that disappeared overnight? Well, the uh, U.S. And, and Biden have frozen the almost $10 billion in assets that mm. belongs to the government of Afghanistan, which is now the Taliban, but we won't give it to them because we don't like them. We're going to make them dance to our tune before they get their own money back. Uh, typical arrogance, but what do you expect? Yeah, of course. What's the, the, the same old crowd? They're cutting off the, the money, the IMF. Um, I, I was also involved with the currency exchange program in late 2002, and I think that that was potentially, I mean, it was organized by an, a, a group called Lewis Berger Associates or Lewis Berger Associates, uh, who I think were in the Midwest. And um, it's interesting. It's worth looking into who they were, actually. Uh, but I think that they were essentially turning it into a Rothschild controlled central bank. And now, of course, we're going to be pulling the plug on it. So where has all the money gone? And that's a good story that, that someone could, could do. What's, what's going on with the Afghan Central Bank? Okay, follow the money there. Maybe one of our viewers can do some research on that and get yeah. back to us. Uh, so, hey, how about another blame game? Instead of the Afghan blame game, let's get to the COVID blame game. And this is related because the seismic geopolitical shift that Alistair Crook talked about in his article here 
is now uh, really putting the U.S.-China rivalry on the front burner, which is what Biden says this is all about, getting out of Afghanistan is to get back to our real interest, which is stopping the rise of China. Well, there is uh, that Ronan's hypothesis, uh, very well supported by evidence, that, in fact, COVID was unleashed in a botched neocon biological attack on China and Iran. And, of course, the U.S., uh, put the level four laboratory in Wuhan ahead of time, specifically so they could blame China for this outbreak as a psychological warfare uh, approach. And now China is blaming the U.S. They haven't gone as far as Ron Unz has and said it was a deliberate attack on us, which it was almost certainly. But they're saying, well, it sure looks like it came from Fort Detrick. So we have uh, three stories all al- amalgamated by Yahoo News from the New York Times and other establishment sources here. Um, we might as well go through all three of these, uh, screaming and yelling and, and propagandizing against those evil Chinese conspiracy theorists, uh, who might imagine that COVID actually came from the U.S. rather than China. <laughs> what do you think, Lucy? Well, I think it came from Fort Detrick and it was taken to China. And I, and I think one has to look at the evidence that David Martin gives either to Ryan Fulmich or to Stu Peters, I think I mentioned last time I was on, uh, where he's looked at all the patents that were taken out from, I think, 93, I mean, from very early on, uh, that Fauci has been involved with. And there was, I think, a British guy, was it Peter Dazak or someone, who was working in that lab in Wuhan. So um, it seems to me that it would it's pretty likely that it's come from the US and it's been taken to China, as you say, in order to implicate the Chinese uh, for these geopolitical purposes. Okay, and if so, that's another insane plan from the neocons, just like 9-11 and the 9-11 wars were an insane plan from the neocons. And here's the latest insane plan from well, pretty much neocons and other hardliners who talked Trump into creating the U.S. Space Force. And this article in Covert Action magazine, I think, uh, does a great job of going over the history of efforts to stop the militarization of space, starting with the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which banned WMD in space, no nuclear bombs in space. And now there has this ongoing effort to extend the treaty uh, and make it become what they would call the prevention of an arms race in space, the Paros Treaty. And everybody wants this treaty. The Russians want it. The Chinese want it. The Iranians want it. Everybody wants this treaty except, guess who? The Americans. You know, I'm really ashamed to be an American sometimes. And this story is just more evidence that I'm right about that. Yeah, isn't Elon Musk putting up thousands of satellites at the moment, which are going to be turned on in the autumn to assist with when they turn on the 5G, which they've been putting up all through the lockdowns around the world? That that's, you know, that's kind of stage one, isn't it? And and then this is going on in the background. It's horrible. Yeah, well, I guess these guys think, well, we, we, we can't do anything on the ground. Everybody hates us. You know, we can't mm. go in and get any intel in Afghanistan on the ground. So we have to go way up in the sky with our drones and murder people from the sky. And so maybe we have to withdraw all the way to outer space. And if we just threaten to murder enough people from outer space, we can control the world. Sorry, guys, I don't think it's going to work like that. But uh, anyway, let's get to the most important story of the week, which is uh, the zoo that banned the woman from having an affair with their chimpanzee. Um, A.D. Timmerman, they even published her name, uh, her relationship with Cheetah the Chimp, uh, which consisted of the two of them waving and blowing kisses to each other through the glass, has apparently proved detrimental to Cheetah's social status with the other chimpanzees. Now, the story doesn't mention it, but it probably wasn't so great for A.D. Timmerman's social status, posting pictures of her banana-loving boyfriend on social media either. 
And uh, then let's think of what the jealousy issues. If Cheetah lets the other women wave at him and blow kisses, would that make him Cheetah the cheating chimp? And, and how about the COVID <laughs> issue? I mean, can we let people blow kisses at chimps during the rise of the Delta variant? I mean, can the chimp even see if the kisses, the kisses being blown if you're behind a mask? And does masking, masking prevent kiss blowing from spreading the virus to chimpanzees? Have there been any randomized controlled trials? So let that be a lesson to you, Lucy. If you're ever tempted to blow any kisses at a chimpanzee, don't <laughs> instead. And this is, of course, the bottom line here. The moral of this story and every story, get vaccinated. Get very <laughs> vaccinated. Get vaccinated at least once for every time I've told you to get vaccinated. In fact, get vaccinated a thousand times, 10 million times, and then get a 100 million boosters. And then we can all live perfectly safely, safely and happily, happily ever after the end. And I think that is the end of our show. Thanks. Thanks, Lucy. It's been fun. Pleasure, Kevin. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. God bless. Thank you all of our viewers and supporters. See you all next time.